0: Now, as we uh, think about what we want to study today, I want to, I want to talk about God's grace in the life of a believer. Um, you know, theology simply defined is, is simply studying about God or thinking about God. And so uh, we can all do that. Uh, you don't have to have a seminary education. Uh, you don't have to go to seminary. You simply need to study the Word of God and and. And meditate and allow God to teach you. And so we learn as we study about God many of the doctrines, uh, the truths that he has uh, for us in his word. And of course doctrines are generally statements about God's character or his will in human history. And it's very important for us to to study doctrine. uh, Because... Uh, It's out of out of doctrine and good, sound doctrine that uh, our obedience to Christ will flow the way that we live out our life uh, will flow out of what we truly believe and and what we believe should come from the truth of God's word. And so I want us to look at the doctrine of grace today, Um, and I'm going to use as my as a text uh, Titus chapter two. So any of you that are physically able, if you would, stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness with worldly passion And worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority that let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, and I pray that uh, you would teach us today. Lord, may uh, you guide my words in such a way that uh, they would definitely uh, speak truth that comes directly from your word, and uh, speak into our hearts that we might know you in a deeper and a richer way, and we might understand your purpose and plan for our lives, and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So uh, I'm going to focus on verse 11 and following because it's in that part of the text that we find the doctrine of grace. Now, Paul clearly connected the practical behaviors of verses 1 uh, through 10 to that doctrine. Uh, He says, uh, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine." And so he gives us a list of things in which the way that we're to act. Older women, older men, young women, young men. uh, The ways in which we're to act to live out our life. But all of that is to be based on the reality of the doctrine that we find in verse 11 and following. And so I want us to look at grace today. uh, Because uh, the doctrine of grace. Because Christian conduct must be grounded in and motivated by Christian truth or doctrine. I remember some time back. Uh, it's been several years now, but uh, Pastor Wade preached a sermon entitled Doctrine on Fire. And the reality of the, the reason that we've got to have sound doctrine is because that's the basis of what we come to hold as true and what we value in our life. And the, true, the, the, the principles that we believe to be true and, and hold as a value in our life, out of that is going to flow our behavior. And so we need to understand clearly that the doctrine of grace is important for you and me today, not simply in the past for us to be saved, but the doctrine of grace is critical for us today as we seek to live out a life that brings honor and glory to God. And so we're going to look at how that plays out uh, in this passage of of scripture. Uh, It is God's glorious plan to demonstrate his saving power through his saved people. The sovereign purpose of all exhortations to holy living in Scripture is to honor and glorify God through the righteous living of his people, leading to the salvation of more sinners. So what we need to understand is that God wants to use us. Not simply that we would be holy and righteous. That's critical because he wants to be glorified through our lives. But in so doing, we're going to see other unbelievers come to faith in Jesus Christ. So we have an awesome responsibility to live under the grace of God in our own life. So let's look at grace in this particular passage. And we're going to look at grace from three different perspectives. It's going to be grace past, grace present, and grace future. And uh, in, in verse 11 of Titus 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You see, God's grace has appeared. It's talking about Jesus Christ when he came. God's grace toward us is based solely on his love and our total inability to meet God's standards. What we need to understand about grace. God's grace brings us salvation through Jesus Christ. But there's no way in the world that we can earn it. And that's why it's grace. It's a gift that God has given to us. You see, you and I can never be good enough to to earn salvation. We can't belong to the right church. Just because you're a member of Longview Point, it doesn't mean that you are saved. It has nothing to do with it, in fact. It's a result of being saved possibly because you desire to unite with a church that wants to uh, preach the word of God and and wants to be on mission to, to take the gospel across the street and around the world. But it has no saving power whatsoever in your own life. Your baptism has no saving power. You see, the grace that God has demonstrated to us Is simply because of his great love for us and has nothing whatsoever to do with anything that we can accomplish or have accomplished or ever will accomplish because we're totally unable to fulfill the laws of God. If you do a study on the law, you'll see that the very reason that the new covenant exists is because we could not fulfill the law. The law came to show us that we were indeed sinners. And it's only through Jesus Christ <coughs> that we can be saved. In John uh, three sixteen, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. You see, it's based out of his love for you and for me. And secondly, God's grace is a gift that we do not deserve and cannot learn. And cannot earn. We can never be good enough. We don't deserve it. What you and I deserve is death and hell. Because any sin, any unrighteousness, separates us from God. And because He is eternally holy and righteous, He must judge sin. And so, because we're sinners, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we deserve death and hell. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve God's judgment on our life. But it's a gift that we don't deserve and we cannot earn. But God still made it available to us because of his great love for us. Uh, If you look at Ephesians, turn with me to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The word says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. You see, we can't earn it. Grace is a gift. It's not as a result of anything that we've done. It's not as a result of works. Because if it was, it would diminish The glory that God deserves. If we could earn it. And because he deserves all honor and all glory. The only way we can be saved is because of his grace. He offers it to us as a gift. Without grace there can be no salvation. Since grace is fundamental to salvation. Back up to verse 4 there in in chapter 2 of Ephesians. You see, apart from grace, there is no salvation. Because we don't deserve it, because we can't earn it, the only possible way that we can ever be saved is that offer of grace. And we need to understand that. If you've never experienced that grace, if you've never received what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, you've never experienced that grace, then you need to do that today. Because there's no salvation apart from grace. We'll never earn it. And then we see your next blank there. The source of grace is Jesus Christ. God provided a way that we could experience this grace. John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except through me. You see, there's no other way. There's no other name given among men whereby you might be saved. Jesus Christ is the only way. God's grace is his unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor toward wicked, unworthy sinners, by which he delivers them from condemnation and death. The grace of God is more than a divine attribute. It is a divine person, Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is not only God incarnate, but grace incarnate. He himself personifies and expresses the grace of God. You see, Jesus is grace. It's through him that we can have eternal life. And then we move on and see that the subject of grace is to bring salvation to all men. Back in Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all men. This refers to a deliverance from sin and the consequences of that sin, the spiritual death and eternal separation from God. That's what Jesus provides for us. That's what God's grace provides for us. That we no longer are under the the penalty of eternal damnation because of our sin. But he's provided a way that we can be, we can have our sin debt paid. And we can be reconciled to God. And live in, in unity and in harmony with him. And then we see that salvation sums up the longing of God... That is manifested in his redemptive work because it denotes deliverance, rescue, and release from sin. Jesus Christ does not only deliver us from spiritual death, but many times he even delivers us from physical harm. You see, God longs to be in relationship with us. That we would glorify him. Let's look at Psalms chapter 96. Turn with me to you would, Psalms 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, for he is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established and it shall never be moved. You see, God is most concerned about His glory. He's the only one that deserves to be glory. We find many, many Psalms that speak of the glory of God and that God should be glorified and praised and honored. And so God longs to be in relationship with us that we might bring honor and glory to him and glorify his name through the way that we live our lives in obedience to him. And there's nothing selfish about that. Because God is eternally holy, righteous, just, all-powerful, all-knowing. And when the list goes on and on, he is incomprehensible. He deserves all honor and glory and praise. And so for him to be most concerned about that is absolutely right. And he is most glorified when you and I surrender and stop living for self and give him the place of honor in our lives that he deserves and only he deserves. So God longs for that kind of relationship with us. And then in his atoning death, Christ did not save all men spiritually, but provided the means of salvation to all men who would be saved. You often, I'm often asked the question, or maybe it's just me thinking about it, but why did God give us a choice? It's a good question, at least I think it is. Why did he give us a choice? You know where I landed on this? God is most glorified when we choose to glorify him. If he's concerned about his glory, if he's the only one that deserves glory and honor, then he is most glorified when we who have been given the choice to rebel or obey, obey him. And so we need to understand that that we, we need to call out to God. He has provided the means. See, we have a choice. We do not have to accept the grace that God has offered to us. But oh, what a wonderful grace it is. And it's my prayer today that if you have not experienced that grace, that you will call out. Call on the name of Jesus and experience the grace that he has to offer to us. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Salvation passed. But it didn't end there. Salvation is not uh, just past. Grace is not just past, but then we look at grace, the grace of God present. <clears throat> look at verse 12 back in Titus. Well, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self control, upright and godly lives in this present age. You see, grace is active in training you and me to live righteous, holy, godly lives today. Grace is important for us to reflect on the cross and all that Jesus Christ did for us. Paying the sin debt that you and I owe. And as we reflect on that and live in the context of that grace that's been extended to us. In gratefulness for it. Grace continues to work in our life to train us to live godly and holy and righteous lives. See, grace sustains us in our time of need. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You find a a passage there where Paul has been given a thorn in the flesh. Paul may have been a lot like you and me. We get kind of prideful sometimes. Think we got this thing figured out and we can do it in our own strength. And so he's given a thorn in the flesh to buffet him. Paul pleaded with the Lord three times to remove this thorn in the flesh, but God said, Paul, my grace is sufficient. See, God doesn't always remove the persecutions, the trials, and the tribulations in life that we go through. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see... God's grace sustains us in time of need. We're all going to go through some trials in life. We're going to have times of need. It may be emotional crisis. It may be physical illness. It may be financial struggles. It may be broken relationships. The list could go on and on. But every one of us are going to run into those difficult times in life. But what we can be sure of is that God's grace is sufficient. He may not remove the obstacle from our life, but he will sustain us through it. And we can count on that. And so God's grace sustains us in our time of need. Secondly, God's grace provides strength. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul speaking, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. You see, many of us, we constantly work at serving the Lord and we're doing a lot of good things and sometimes we just get burnt out. We hear stories of of preachers and ministers and of all different sorts, that, that are experiencing burnout. I've even been there myself, and so I can say this with confidence. The reason that we experience burnout in ministry is because we depend on our own strength rather than the grace of God and the strength that it provides. As we will not burn out as long as we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit surrendered to his leadership in our lives day by day and focused on those things that he leads us to do that have eternal kingdom value we will not burn out doing God's work if we do it in his power and so the grace of God in our lives provides the strength that we need We will get tired, though. Let me put that note in there. But we won't get burnt out. We won't get discouraged for long. So grace provides the strength that we need to accomplish those things that God leads us to. And then grace provides thanksgiving and glory to God. 2 Corinthians 4.15 For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. You see, grace is always reaching out for someone else. That's why he wants us to live a life that's consistent with the grace that we have experienced in order that others see that grace in our lives and we're able to share the gospel with them. So more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and more and more people are bringing thanksgiving and glory to God because that's when he is most glorified, when people are surrendering to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Grace also affects our conversations. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We live in a culture where if we say adultery, fornication, homosexuality, abortion, these things are wrong, then we're labeled as haters. How do we deal with that? Well, it's only by grace that we will respond in a way that we keep the door open to share the gospel with people that are living a lifestyle that's blatantly against God's word. We must maintain the integrity of the truth of the word of God, but it's only with grace that we'll be able to have the kinds of conversations that will ultimately see many of these people surrender to the Lordship of Christ and leaving a life of sin and darkness you see, we have a responsibility to speak truth in love. And it's only the grace of God that will allow us to do that. And so the grace of God affects our conversations. It's needed in our everyday life. It's not just for salvation. It affects our conversations. And then grace enables believers to live holy and godly lives. 2 Corinthians 1.12. For our boast is this the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. You see, it's grace that will allow us to live a godly and a holy life in front of others and relate to them in such a way that they see the grace of God in us, and ultimately they'll desire to experience that. So the grace of God is not only powerful, but it's active. Every day, we need the grace of God in our lives to live in such a way that we bring honor and glory to God. And so it's it's active, but it is also, the goal of grace is to train us. See, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Training carries a meaning of teaching, training, discipling, educating, and maturing. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is a teacher, a guide, and a counselor. So, when we are saved, we immediately come under the tutelage of God through the Holy Spirit and his word when we experience his grace we fall under his leadership his counsel his teaching his equipping his training 1 Corinthians 2:12 and 13 says this now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So we're not going to figure this out on our own. It's the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. The grace of God at work in our lives That's going to train us and equip us for godly living. So we're under the tutelage of God through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The Bible teaches that a person who is divinely born again is no longer under the pervasive dominion of sin and Satan. He has a radical new nature and is called and enabled to reflect the new nature and a radical new way of living. If you were here Wednesday night, as we uh, looked at Psalm 14, we talked about the depravity of mankind, the reality that every one of us has a sin nature and that uh, apart from the grace of God in our lives, We are capable of horrendous things. But you see, all things are made new. We still have that sin nature, but the grace of God enables and empowers and trains us to overcome the sin nature that we have and live a godly and a righteous life. Reflect that new nature in a radical new way of living. Paul says in Galatians two twenty, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, it's in Christ, through the grace of God, that we're to live our lives. Not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Controlled and led and guided by the Holy Spirit. So how does grace train us? It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So first of all, grace warns us. That's how it trains us. It warns us to deny ungodliness. Ungodliness refers to a lack of true reverence and devotion to God. It speaks of a defiance toward God's person. In Hebrews twelve sixteen, the scripture says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Esau was the eldest son to his brother Jacob. He was the father of Isaac. His grandfather was Abraham, who had been given a promise. God said, I will make of you a great nation. And you will be a blessing to all nations. Esau had this light. He had been taught the word of God. He heard the promises of God. He knew all of this yet for a measly bowl of soup. He sold this birthright. He pointed his finger in the face of God and said, what I want is more important than your will. And how many times do we do that in our lives? Rather than falling on our knees in humility and surrendering to the Holy Spirit and His leadership in our lives and giving up our self-sufficiency and self-dependency and selfishness and, and the rights that we think we have, in order that the name of God and the name of Jesus might be glorified in our lives and through our lives, grace teaches us, it warns us to deny ungodliness, it also warns us to deny worldly lust. 1 John two fifteen and 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He warns us to deny those. Those things lead to death. Following God and experiencing His grace, being led by His grace daily, leads to life. Van Oostersee said this, The true learning of heaven must begin with the unlearning and laying off of all which stands in the way of the development of the new man. We can't hold on to the old man and expect to become new. We need to continually allow God to show us those things in our life that we need to be laying off in order that we can live a life that brings honor and glory to God. So grace is warning us to deny these worldly lusts. So grace trains us by warning us. Grace also trains us by enabling us training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then we get to the positive side of that. He enables us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. You see, this is what grace does. For the grace of God has appeared. So grace trains us by enabling us to live soberly or sensibly. This has to do with how we relate to ourselves. It means that the grace of God gives us the the ability to discipline our lives and, and to bring under control all of those things of the flesh. We're no longer controlled by the flesh, but we, we, we master them through the grace of God in our lives. You see, the, the redeemed inner person See, here, by the grace at work, by the enablement and power of the Holy Spirit in his redeemed inner person, he brings the unredeemed flesh under control. The grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled lives. So we can bring sober living, sensible living, to our lives through the grace of God by allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us. You see, this is the first step. I said it has to deal with our relationship to self. You see, we will never relate rightly to others and to God without making sure that our own life is being transformed and renewed by God, that we're in perfect relationship with Him in order that, that we're constantly being changed And that we bring into submission the flesh in our own life. It trains us. So grace trains us by enabling us to live soberly. It also trains us to live righteously. This has to do with how we relate to others. Soberly relates to the divine and continuing change within us. And then righteously connects with our change relationship toward others, both believers and non-believers. Righteously denotes conduct that cannot be condemned. And so grace allows us to relate to other people, whether they be believers or non-believers, that cannot be condemned. So even when we are speaking truth, we speak it in such a way that our actions can't be condemned. And grace enables us to do that. It requires of us a life of truth in all of our dealings. So we must be people of integrity, living righteously. And then grace trains us by enabling, a, enabling us to live godly. This has to do with how we relate to God. To be devout. The old attitude of indifference toward God is replaced by an attitude of supreme devotion to Him. Let me ask you a question. If if you were to ask some of your closest friends, children, grandchildren, colleagues at work, or what would you say that I am most devoted to? How many of them would answer God? Does our life look, look like that to where other people recognize that, that our supreme devotion is to God? So, it should become our desire to put God first and foremost in our life and allow our lives to, to be lived in such a way that that's demonstrated. So, grace passed. Jesus Christ came and he provided a means by which we can be reconciled to God. Grace present. Grace is active in our lives today, and grace is training us to deny some things in our life, but also to enable us to live a holy and a righteous life. And this grace is to be lived out in this present world. This is the field that he's given us. We can't, you know, he tells us to to be in the world, but not of the world. He wants to use you and me. He wants this grace to be demonstrated right here in this life that he's given us in order that others see that grace desired and come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is expected of us that have received this instruction to live accordingly. Therefore, his grace in us becomes a powerful testimony of the saving and transforming power of Jesus Christ. Grace past, grace present. Now let's look at grace future. Verses 13 and 14. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Appearing of the glory of our great God. You see, Jesus Christ, the first time he came, he came as a suffering servant. Philippians tells us that he humbled himself. He humbled himself even to the point of death. Death on a cross. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He became your substitute and my substitute. You and I deserve death and hell. We deserve the wrath of God, but Jesus Christ took our sins upon the cross. He paid the penalty, the sin debt that we owe. He gave to us his righteousness that we might stand before God. And as Paul proclaimed that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus was not a a victim of Roman soldiers. It wasn't a consequence of Jews that were seeking to kill him. All of those things were real, but the reality of it is, is that Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross. You remember that before he went to the cross, he had just had the Lord's Supper, instituted that with his disciples. They went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and and Jesus left some of his disciples here, and he took Peter, James, and John. He said, come with me a little further. He, He wanted them to pray with him. He went a little bit further on, and he knelt there in the garden, and he cried out. Lord, if there's any way this cup could pass from me, let it be. But not my will be done, but yours. You see, a full and complete surrender to the the will of the Father. And He did that because of His love for us. He gave Himself for us. The reason that He did it was to redeem us from all wickedness. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and then to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, God's plan and his purpose is that he always have a group of people that are his very own. The world had gotten totally evil and he called Noah, and he said, I want you to build an ark. He saved Noah and his family and destroyed the entire world. A remnant of people. Then he called Abraham. He said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And you will be a blessing to all nations. Through his line came Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, the doors were open wide. For any of us who choose to accept What Christ has done for us on the cross to enter in and experience this grace of God. Belonging to God carries responsibilities. We should live with the sole objective of pleasing our Lord. Paul told us how we can delight our Savior by being people who are eager to do what is good. Or as the ESV says, who are zealous for good works. Do you do just enough to get by and say check a few boxes and say, I've 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 done all that God wants me to do this week? Or are you zealous for good works? Your last blank there is there is no greater incentive for Christian living than the second coming of Jesus Christ. The grace of God future. You see, this. This Savior, this grace that we described, that that came, surrendered to the will of the Father, paid the sin debt that you and I owe, imputed to us his righteousness, who came as a suffering servant, who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, is coming back. He's coming as King of King and Lord of Lords. And he will call his own to himself and will rule and reign with him forever. You see, grace has been provided for us. Grace sustains us and teaches and equips us to live a godly life. And then it provides the hope that we need to endure. Because one day he's coming back. Let me give you the point of it all. We are saved in order that God might demonstrate his glorious grace, which produces in us the desire to do what is right and good, thereby giving glory to our Lord Jesus and righteously impacting lives of the non-believers in his name. He didn't provide this salvation that you and I might sit idly by and just, thanks God for saving me. He saved us that we might live a life that brings honor and glory to Him and in so doing see other people come to faith in Jesus Christ. That He might be most glorified. We're never expected to live righteously in our own strength. The power of the risen Christ enables the believer to obey living worthy of His high calling.